guys, this is Danny. And this is Molly. And this is Black Chick Lit. We're very excited for today's episode. We're very excited. But before we get into it, how have you been, Molly? You know, I've been striving. I've been thriving. Is yes, that a word? Is. <laughs> I've been thriving. <laughs> yeah, like you weren't confident on the thriving. That's good. I've been doing okay, too. We've been doing okay. We're recording this on like right around daylight savings time. So it's my least favorite time mm-hmm. of the year. But I'm going into this fall season with a better outlook. I'm trying not to be so, mm-hmm. you know, bring the energy you want into your life. So good. I'm glad to hear you I doing well. Mm-hmm. Halloween mm-hmm. just passed. How was baby's first Halloween? This is not his first Halloween. What the hell am I on? I have another friend who had a baby who was first Halloween. How was baby's Halloween? <laughs> this was not his first Halloween, but it was the first time we really got to trick or treat. That's right, because he's a COVID baby. Mm-hmm. And he was like terrified at first, but then like when he saw the candy, like his eyes are open. He was literally like howling at the moon. <laughs> and double fisting dum-dums. Uh, I mean... I don't think, so MJ's the same age. He doesn't get Halloween, but he gets that he gets candy. Like, he doesn't care about uh, anything. He's like, he gets that. He's like, if I go up to you with a bag, you give me stuff. So, same. He had that same kind of energy. See, we were prepping for it for, like, a month and a half. <laughs> Watching all the Halloween movies, costumes, decorations. And my husband's birthday was the week before, so we had, like, a costume party, and he was just, like... He was literally like, like he was raving. Like he was just like dancing. He loved, he fucking loves dancing. And then we had like a big like a cooler full of drinks and stuff. And he kept, he like saw people going in there. So he went over. He like got his grandpa a beer. He got his uncle a soda. But like you know he's a two year old, so he's like carrying like trying to carry eight of them at a time. We had to keep like running over there and said, "Please, Frankie, please, like don't do it too much. You're doing too much." Just you, relax, enjoy the party. But he was just like, he was dancing around the table. Do you know that song, Spooky Scary Skeletons? I'm sure I've heard. Yes. I think the kids are yes. on this song. Yes. Loves I it. L- loves it. <laughs> loves it. When Spotify does their like wrap up of the year, like I'm sure I'm going to be in that guy's top 1%. because <laughs> The repeated plays. Just over and over and over again. And you're def- just with this little skeleton mask on What's i was up? gonna say in your defense we tried to put together a halloween playlist there are not a lot of options we got we got yeah. rihanna's disturbia we've got mm-hmm. thriller by michael jackson we even had to add mm-hmm. rockwell's it always feels like you know that old one with michael jackson on it, it always feels like somebody's watched me mm. and then the monster mm-hmm. mash and then we just ran out of songs we're like what else do we there was one that we heard now i can't remember what the name of it was like Skeleton Sam something. I'll ask my husband. I'll put it in the okay. show notes because I was like, this is the most like, like this is a Halloween song designed to play in the Target oh, song I've ever it. heard. I guess people haven't jumped on that the way they have like Christmas carols. They need to. There is a real drought of Halloween songs. Like we had nothing to play yeah. after Rihanna's Disturbia was a stretch. After that, we were like, we got nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So, all right. Let's get to it. We're really, and let's talk about why we're really excited for this episode. I almost said month, week, this episode. We are reading mm-hmm. Kindred. We're doing it for realsies this time. <laughs> if mm-hmm. you, you probably, because that was one of our first episodes. That was episode eight for us. We did an episode about the graphic novel adaptation of Kindred, and we sort of talked about taking books and adapting them. For this one, we're really digging in to Kindred, the story, and the book. Mm hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the reason we're doing this is because we have our first sponsored episode, actually two mm-hmm. episodes. So Kindred is being adapted by FX. And they reached out to us and said, uh, hey, fools, like, we like what you're doing over there. <laughs> um, what do you think about, you know, talking about Octavia Butler? Because as we understand it, this is really the first TV adaptation of her work that's going to come out. And a lot of new people are going to be introduced to Octavia Butler's work who might not have known her in the past. And I think that's true. I don't think I think if you're not a reader, and definitely if you're not a sci-fi reader or reader of a lot of black work, you probably don't know who Octavia Butler is. So we kind of really jumped on this chance to do an episode and really do a deeper dive into who she is and her work. Because mm-hmm. I think the last episode we did was fun, but we really didn't get into all the, all that there is to do to dig into with Kindred. In the mm-hmm. book, yeah. Okay, but before we begin, this episode is sponsored by FX's Kindred, the original series only on Hulu. Based on the celebrated and critically acclaimed novel by Octavia E. Butler. FX's Kindred centers on Dana James, a young Black woman and aspiring writer. Dana begins to settle into her new home in Los Angeles and is violently pulled back and forth in time. She emerges at a 19th century plantation, a place intimately linked with Dana and her family. The clock is ticking as Dana struggles to confront secrets she never knew ran through her blood. FX's Kindred, all episodes streaming December 13th, only on Hulu. I always wanted to say that, something like that. Your best TV announcer voice. (laughs) FX is the producer, Hulu is the distributor. That's what it is. Because I was Mm -hmm. a little confused. Mm -hmm. So cool. Yeah, so it's going to be like all episodes at once. So you can binge it. You can tell us what you thought about it. You can come back for our second episode, which we're keeping under wraps now, but you'll see in a couple weeks. So, and I'm just really excited because damn, I love rereading books I like. So now I'm really Mm -hmm. even more hyped for a series because this book was so Mm -hmm. good. I think we both had a moment, like I was listening to it on audiobook, like throughout work Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I just got to a certain point and I like turned it off and I turned to my husband. I was like, oh my God, like this book is so good. Like this is like the fourth or fifth time I've read it. And I feel like I was still like, oh shit, like this is a good ass book. And then just today we were driving. I got a text message from Danny and it was just this book is so good. (laughs) is because like even beyond like the themes like the craft of it is just so well done it's so well organized and crafted and like the tension mm-hmm. and the and the way she used the way the plot moves forward it's amazing it's great i love it mm-hmm. like i'm just i'm really excited for like this to come out and people to be introduced to her i know that a lot of people have been talking about parable of the sower and you know things that are happening post dobbs so I'm just excited for more people to learn more about her and more learn more about like black sci-fi, Afrofuturism, and just like what an amazing writer she was. Because, you know, like all aside, like Octavia Butler is like a hero of mine. Like I read uh, Blood Child as a kid, well, like a teen, and it just like hit me like her talking about writing, mm-hmm. like just really opened up like the different types of writing that we can do. And it just... I was like, yeah, so she's always going to be like a fave of mine. Oh, awesome. I didn't know that. I still haven't read Blood Child. That's the, it's not the one, oh, but it's so one funny. of the ones I still have to read. If you have any kind of fear about childbirth, like do not read that book. Good to know. because Just do not. <laughs> because. But the essays in there are also very good. It's like, it's a, it usually comes collected, Blood Child and then her essays. Okay. Yeah. And I think 
that's one of the ones. So I, when I did my research, she won a lot of awards for her writing. She won a lot of Hugos and Nebulas, but she, not for mm-hmm. Kindred, but Bloodchild was one of the ones she won, like, I think a mm-hmm. Hugo and a Nebula, Nebula for. So, mm-hmm. which now let's get into it. Let's talk about, so I think this episode, we're going to do a, a deeper dive than what we typically do about the author, just introducing, you know, who she was, what her life was like, what her writing philosophy and stuff was like. Cause I looked up some really cool quotes about, you know, her thoughts on like sci-fi and writing the future. And then we're going to dig into this horrifying, (laughs) horrifying book that is Kindred. So Octavia Butler was born in Pasadena, California, June 22nd, 1947. She was raised by her mother and grandmother. She describes her upbringing as very religious as both, I think her family was Baptist. She was extremely shy as a child and had dyslexia. And she said both of those things led her to be bad in school and led her to be bullied in school. And she described herself in her own words as ugly and stupid, clumsy and socially hopeless. So she would, like a lot of shy, bookish black girls, (laughs) this was too relatable. She found her escape (laughs) to the library and she found, first she discovered like fairy tales and things like that, eventually working her way to fantasy and science fiction. She began writing as a teenager and would go on to study at Pasadena City College, where she won a short story contest and earned her first income as a professional writer. Do you want to guess how much the award was? Mm, $20. You are so close. It was 15 <laughs> 1960s money. She won $15 for her short story. So I feel like I'm repeating, like I'm just repeating the same thing over and over. You have not yet read Parable of the Sower. So you have not mm-hmm. read how creepily <laughs> accurate it is. I know. I like picked it up. I picked it up several times to start it. And every time I'm like, it's, let me tell you, it just gets worse. The more time passes, she just keeps, <laughs> she just keeps getting proven right. And um, mm-hmm. I found this article while doing research. I found this article, this essay, not an article, this essay she wrote for Essence Magazine in the year 2000. And there was this great quote where she sort of talks about like how she's able, because I guess this is not just me who noticed that she's really, really good at being eerily accurate about the future. I guess it was one of the things that brought her acclaim. So one of the quotes she said on how she's able to be so prescient in her predictions of the future, she her quote is, I didn't make up the problems. All I did was look around at the problems we're, ne- we're neglecting now and give them about 30 years to grow into full-fledged disasters. And that hit me <laughs> because in Parable of the Sower, a lot of the problems that are being dealt with are things like global warming, a widening gra- gap between the rich and the poor, uh, capitalism just being the solution for all of our problems, even democracy, you know, disease and things like that. So it was just really eerie how accurate she was in that one. She earned a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1995, becoming the first sci-fi author to ever win the award. She was also the recipient of numerous Hugo and Nebula awards, which she won for, as I mentioned, Bloodchild and Parable of the Sowers. I believe it was the first one, not the... Parable of the Talents, I'm sorry. The second one, not the first one. And so she also won numerous awards, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Penn Foundation. And she also has been recognized by NASA like more than once. She's got she has a mountain on Pluto's moon named after her, which is like that's awesome. Yes. And she's she's also the landing site of the Perseverance rover on Mars, like where it touched down 
is named after her. Its official name, let me make sure I'm reading this right, is the Octavia E. Butler Landing. Hmm. So that's pretty cool. I think, like, I think, I think NASA is just full of a bunch of nerds, and I think that's really cool. Oh, absolutely. Because, <laughs> like, Nichelle Nichols has, like, an asteroid named after her, too. Like, I love it. <laughs> So I don't have this in my notes, but I do just know off the top of my head. She passed away, I believe, in 2004 or 2006 from complications of like heart heart disease, I believe. She was in the middle of working on continuing, I think it was the Fledgling series that she'd st- mm-hmm. or was it? No, it was Parable. Mm-hmm. It was the Parable series. I think she was in the middle of finishing the third book for that series when she passed away. So it has not yet been mm. finished. I'm sorry, mm. fantasy writers. I'm really sad that that is a repeating trend that seems yeah. to happen. Like, because who was the other guy you were yeah. talking about? I think it was the Wheel of Time. Yeah. The guy passed Wheel of, away. Yeah, and finished. Sanderson, I think, finished it. I believe so. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So, very sad. So, I, what is your relationship? So, I didn't realize that little Molly looked up to Octavia Butler the way she did. Like, is there anything you want to say before we move on about the book, about the author, or like anything more we should dig into? Well, I read her <laughs> essays and I read Blood Child. And like, for me, I think like the essays were so important because she was talking about like, like, I know a lot of people point to On Writing by Stephen <laughs> King, right? And for me, like, her essays were like that. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, like, you can write and you can write, you know, basically in any genre you want, anything that you're interested in, like, go for it. It was so, like, inspiring to me when, you know, being Black, being young, being in the middle of Missouri, like, people were like, uh, yeah, no, whatever. Like, you couldn't do anything as a writer. You couldn't, like, there's no future in this for you specifically. And I think, you know, just given her background... I just, I don't know, it just really spoke to me and it just really made me, even though I didn't like pursue writing full time, it just kind of said like, this can be something that you can do for yourself. Like this could be something worthy and something of value, even if no one else understands it at this point. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like I'm like rambling. No, I get like, it doesn't necessarily even have to be for money. It doesn't have to be for commercial success. You're writing because you have an idea that you want to share with the world and whoever you are. Your idea is worthy to be shared. You don't have to be a certain person to have writing or ideas that are deemed worth publishing. Yes. Yes. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I, I'm not even going to say, I was like, I wish I remember. I'm like looking through it. I'm like, yeah, it was like a lady and she was on a ship, but that was a while ago. It's okay. That one. I didn't mean to put you on okay, the spot either. <laughs> I came really prepared to talk about it. No, it's okay. And we can shift to Kindred. But I think just, I just think it's important. And I think you have to remember when she came out, it was like, when she started writing, it was the 1970s and the 1980s. If you were trying to think, I think even now, thinking like of more than a handful of Black African-American sci-fi writers is a struggle. So I can't imagine like in the 1970s or 80s, and you're trying to make a name for yourself in sci-fi and you're a black woman writer the challenges she might have faced so and yeah and it's it's even like you know so much of sci-fi like especially from like the 50s and stuff was like it was different than today Mm -hmm. like it was more like questioning like mankind like the limits of what we could do 
So a lot of it was not like so much this dystopian kind of stuff that we see mm-hmm. now. It was more like, oh, wow, we're going to be so advanced, but what at what cost? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like the these idealized versions of the future that we saw were like super duper white or black people were like, you know, just non-existent or they were like, I'm thinking of like a what's it called um the time machine is like all these like monster dark-skinned people are terrorizing the like blonde people above on earth and stuff and it's like just to have seen that like over and over and over again like even if you think about tolkien it's like the adaptations that we've seen it's like oh these orcs are so dark-skinned and like the heroes are all light and we're still seeing that today Mm -hmm. right but just to like step out and say like, hey, I'm going to make a, a place for black women in this genre and just like, you know, not even just making a place, but just like hitting it out of yes. the park, like, like just a phenomenal writer, like just at the cutting edge. So that's why I'm always just like in awe because, you know, just to imagine, imagine a place for yourself and then make it is just like, it's phenomenal. above and beyond. Yeah. yeah. You are a much more cultured and well-read reader than I am because I was just—I was just thinking of the Jetsons because I was like, (laughs) like when I think of how people in the fifties and sixties were thinking of the future, I think of the Jetsons. Where like, yeah, you have all this technology, but society and its mores haven't changed. Like Jan or whatever the wife name still has to get money from George (laughs) Jetson to go shopping, and what's her face, the teen. It's just all about, you know, she has no plans to go to college. She's not an overstressed high school student the way they are now. And like, it's a single income household. So like, yeah, we have a robot maid and we drive flying cars, but it's just a 19 families, 1950s family in space. No black, Basically. yeah, no black people, no, no, black people. no people of any color whatsoever. So I mean, a lot of that stuff, it was like space madness, giant animals because of a nuclear yes. bomb. You know, the others took over somehow. Eh, you know, it's recurring themes, just like we have today. But and a lot of the same hostility, unfortunately, that I think we find in these genres. Yeah. She has another quote. Sorry, that um Essence article was just full of great quotes. She has another quote that kind of mentions what we talked about, where she kind of says, some of the most mistaken predictions I've seen are of the straight line variety. That's the kind that ignores the inevitability of unintended consequences, ignores our often less than logical reactions to them, and says simply, in the future, we will have more and more of whatever is holding our attention right now. So basically, like, if if the future, if we're, if we're prosperous and we're doing this, that, or the other now, then in the future, it's just going to be more of that. If we're falling apart now and we have this, that, and the other, the future is just going to be more of that. And I kind of feel like that's what some of the more flat depictions of the future and what we're kind of hinted at show. Like they don't show how society changes. They don't show how technology impacts society and how that makes it change. Mm -hmm. So, cause like one of the things I'm stressed about now, speaking of technology and impact is like, okay, so Elon Musk owns Twitter now. It's like, so what are we going to do about that? And he's done away with verification. And Russia's like, okay, put the bots back online. And we've got midterms on Tuesday. So that's going to be a fun little, fun little social experiment. So it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. People are like low key Mm. warning Twitter. And it's kind of funny. (laughs) I was like, somebody's going to like throw a a (laughs) 
a funeral or something and it's just gonna be extra ignorant and i'm gonna be here for it i know where am i gonna go for my ridiculousness so it's gonna happen um all right so i think so i think with that in mind and her thoughts of the future let's shift to kindred i'm really excited because mm-hmm. as i said this book is just so well written and it's so great mm-hmm. and you're gonna be mad at one of the points i'm gonna bring up later you're gonna hate me for bringing it up but somebody has to bring it up and i have to okay. talk about it <laughs> Okay. It's not spicy. It's just going to make everyone sad. So, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, Kindred published in 1979 to acclaim. I I argue because I couldn't find evidence that said anything definitively that it is either the most or among the most well known or popular of her work. Like it's it's the title. I could yeah. see that. I could see it's that. It's the one that like you think of her. That's the title you think of. So, no surprise that it got adapted first. So I have a synopsis, kind of a long synopsis. Do we do a spoiler warning? Yeah, I think we could do a spoiler warning because we're going to get into it. Like if you haven't read it and you're like, oh man, like you're new to us because of the show, I would definitely recommend reading it like before you go into the show. Like we know that the show is not a direct, direct adaptation. There are going to be some changes, but I do think that it's worth reading. Yeah, and we don't know what's going to go happen. We're like, we may speculate how Mm -hmm. they may adapt something, but we don't. We don't know. We fools, as Molly said at the top of the episode, (laughs) we don't know what's going to happen. So, Mm -hmm. all right. So, spoiler warning: we dig into the whole plot. We're going to get into it, and I'm going to start by reading a brief synopsis. It'll go. It looks really long on my page, but it'll go fast. So, I'm going to start by reading a brief synopsis, and then we'll get into it. So. So we meet Dana, an aspiring writer in the hospital after she has recently lost her arm. She argues with police trying to convince them that the loss of her arm was caused by an accident and that her husband is not responsible. When he's finally allowed to see her, Dana and her husband Kevin discuss what they've been through and how they can never speak of it with anyone else as no one would believe them. Dana tells us the trouble started on the day of her 26th birthday. She and Kevin had spent the day moving into their new home when Dana was suddenly overcome by dizziness and finds herself on the bank of an unknown river where she sees a redheaded child drowning. She jumps into the water and saves the boy, bringing him to shore and giving him CPR. The boy's father joins them and angrily confronts her, pointing his gun in her face. Dana is then thrown back into her living room where she is told by Kevin that she had been gone for only a few seconds before reappearing. Dana has barely had time to clean up when she's again thrown back into the life of the redheaded boy. A few years older this time, the boy, Rufus, has set his bedroom drapes on fire, risking the entire house. Dana soon makes a terrifying realization. She has traveled across space and time, ending up on a plantation in Maryland in 1815. Rufus is her ancestor, and she is drawn to him whenever his life is in danger. For the next few weeks, Dana travels back and forth between 1875 and 1976, drawn back whenever whenever Rufus's life is in danger. Each time she's back, she stays longer and longer, getting pulled into the lives of Rufus, his family, and the slaves kept captive at his plantation. One woman, Alice, is brought to the plantation as a slave after trying to run away with her husband. Rufus has an obsessive and destructive love for Alice and forces her to be with him as a bed slave. She goes on to bear four children for him. Two survive. One is to go on to be Dana's ancestor. Alice is eventually pushed to commit suicide after Rufus lies and pretends to sell their children away. Driven by loneliness and grief, Rufus turns on Dana and nearly rapes her. In her fear and anger, she kills him before being thrown back into present day, her arm trapped into the wall of the living room. And then that sort of ties up the neat end, which is why it's so well-crafted. It ties up the neat end of the beginning of the epilogue where Dana and Kevin are talking about 
how Dana lost her arm and how they can never explain it to the police. And we see that final scene when she leaves, when she leaves Rufus's home and she ends up trapped in the wall of her living room. So as always, there's a lot more than ha- that happens, but I think that's sort of the main plot line that really drives the themes and the actions and the emotions of what's going on in the book. So, ah, there's a lot. So as we always start with, what do you think of the book overall, Molly? I know we sort of touched on it at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's great. Like, just reading it back, you know, now, like, I, I think when I read it, I was closer to Dana's age. Mm-hmm. And now being like older, I, I definitely had like a different take on it. Like, and especially being a parent too, like, things hit me harder this time than than they had before. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I mean, and it's interesting, too, because I feel like everything else I've read from Octavia Butler is a little bit more on the sci-fi, mm-hmm. sci-fi side. But this definitely has some really strong horror elements to it. Yeah, that was when I was looking up things about it, that came up a lot was people were trying to like pinpoint what genre of book this could be considered because I would, I agree. I don't think it's very sci-fi. I think it's speculative. I think it's almost fantasy just because of the time travel element. But, uh, and I think horror is accurate too. And then I also saw people comparing it to um, slave narratives. So like, I guess, you know, during abolitionist times, it was really popular for free freedmen and I guess even white people. They would share accounts of slavery to try and horrify people into the truce of slavery. And this kind of has that feel too. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. The horror, it really is. I had to put the book down a couple times. I was like, okay. Even though I do appreciate that she sort of like the epilogue, the prologue, I really appreciate the prologue because it's her in a hospital bed and Kevin's with her and like, she is missing an arm, but she's, she's alive and she's whole mm-hmm. and she's in 1976 where she belongs. So mm-hmm. I appreciated that. And it's amazing the writing that even with that knowledge, you're still like, oh shit. Yeah. You're still like, the fuck's gonna happen <laughs> what's going to happen? How are they going to suffer? I'll get this over with. This is the thing. There was somebody in present day who just kept, as I was reading the book, I love this book. I will say this. But there was somebody, a present-day figure, a controversial current-day figure, who kept popping up in my head as I was reading the book. And that is... <laughs> oh, no. I know what you're going to say. Oh, no. That is Mr. Kanye West and his famous, that sounds like a choice to me. And I think one thing the book shows extremely well is how... And it even touches on it. They even have a discussion explicitly straight out at one scene with her and Sam where they say, this is everything these people are doing. It's to survive. They don't really have a choice. It's either, it's a choice between, you know, working for white folks, doing what these people tell them to, or being tortured and or killed. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And I think going along with that, like, I think one of like the scariest parts of this book to me is how, how it shows how like slavery corrupted like literally everything it touched like mm-hmm. everyone was affected by it everyone like fell in to these roles like even dana like i remember reading this like the very first time and i'm like okay she's kind of going along with this shit but like as an adult like when you get the whole story you're like okay literally every single person it, it's just so toxic there was like such an awful thing it just 
it warped and cor- like that's the only way I could think to describe mm-hmm. it. Like Dana, Kevin, Rufus, Alice, every single one of them was like absolutely corrupted by this system. And like you said, did made choices that to us might not seem logical on the outside or from this, you know, more privileged position in history where we don't have to be slaves like this. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like we're not living through this. But like you said, it's the choice between literally living and dying. Mm-hmm. And that's the choice, you know? Yeah. And like she has a quote, she says it explicitly. I think Dana is arguing with Sam. And we're I'm jumping ahead in terms of plot, but it does fit with what we're talking about. And she says, they do it to keep the skin on their backs and the breath in their bodies. Well, they're not the only ones who have to do things they don't like to stay alive and whole. Now, tell you tell me why that should be so hard for some folks to understand. So, yeah. I also liked what you said about corruption. Because I was thinking, like, it's so weird seeing Rufus as a little kid and, like, how like yeah he's ignorant about stuff but like he likes dana and you know in any other world he could like you know just be a cool kid and then he just gets older and meaner and more more he said a great word warped and corrupted by the institution that he's a part of and the society yeah i think it was a really powerful choice to like introduce him like so young Mm -hmm. Because even with Dana, like she says a few times, she's like, oh, I still liked him. Like she still knew this kid, like basically his whole life. And when you think of it, like, I think that she spends in total a year. I think like in the past. Yeah, because it starts on her 26th birthday. And towards the end, she says, I can't prove it, but I turned 27 Mm -hmm. there. But for Rufus and Alice and everyone, like she's there for like, you know, she shows up, but she has a history with them that spans decades. So it's kind of interesting, like, and maybe the show will play on this more too. Like, not that I really want to see Rufus's perspective, but it's kind of interesting, like, what he thought Dana was. Yeah. Like his relationship to her, like, you, you would think like, oh, this is like a mother figure to you. This is like a guardian angel to you. But because she's still, they're in this this system of subjugation, like, and he's so corrupted by it, he doesn't, he literally doesn't change. And, like, he literally is not affected. Like, she thinks, oh, if I do this, if I show him this, if I can show my humanity, if I can show this. But he's so corrupted by this system that literally it's like there was no hope for change for him. Yeah, that was kind of, I don't want to say frustrating, but that was kind of one of the things where you really feel sympathetic for her character. because She's like... She she tries, she sees that she, or let me say, she believes she has a power over him because it's explained in the book that Dana only shows up when Rufus's life is in danger and so she can save him. And everyone even starts noticing that. Even the the dad, his dad is like, well, if you're here, he must have been, you know, he must have truly been sick or he must have truly been hurt. So she thinks that gives him her some kind of power. It's like, okay, if you piss me off, I'll just not save you next time. But Rufus almost seems to like, just ignore that completely. He does not care. He straight up says, he was like, well, he was like, what made you think like that I ever wanted you to save me? Yeah. It's like, shit. I mean, Dana, you got kind of a point. (laughs) (laughs) But then it ties it in too, that he is her ancestor. Like literally he's her ancestor. So if there's no Hagar as the daughter, then there's no Dana. So she... Yeah, because otherwise I think it would have been like, I would love, I think, I don't know, but I think that this adaptation is going to 
because this takes place in the 70s. This, this book um, does. This yeah. book takes place in like 76. And it seems like the TV show is going to be contemporary. Well, I wouldn't love this because I don't like necessarily need remakes of everything. But I would just love to have a chapter. There's a part where Dana is saying like, oh, she's trying to describe like, or maybe she's explaining why she isn't telling people she's from the future. But essentially, she's like, okay, well, what if someone from 2019 (laughs) came to 1976 and was telling me? I was like, I couldn't get out of my head. Like Dana is like descended (laughs) from like 2022, like a totally dissatisfied, like Gen Z (laughs) going back to Rufus's time. It was like, I don't give a shit. (laughs) You think I want to be alive? You know, you know their humor. So I just, yeah, I'm interested to see date because she has some of that 70s like optimism a little bit Mm -hmm. still. That I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. A 26 point. year old in 2022. <laughs> That's a good point. We, I think the kids today are a bit more uh, brutal. Or I don't know. I don't know what life was like in the 70s. Like they were going through some shit in the 70s too. But I feel like these kids have been through some shit. And like they will yeah. not hesitate to murder a slave master's son. Yeah. Yeah. So do we want to go through the characters like we normally Yeah, do? I did also want to mention, because you touched on this, I like how as a writer, Butler, Octavia Butler was like, I'm not even going to F with the um, grandfather paradox. She's like, she touches on it briefly. And then Dana's just like, you know what? Better <laughs> safe than sorry. <laughs> right. Dana is a very cautious person. She is. Maybe to a fault, girl. But um, I just thought that was maybe. funny because I was like, well, technically, because it, it raises the thing like, well, you can't technically kill your own grandfather because then you wouldn't be alive to go back in time and kill your own grandfather. And, sh- and she's yeah. just like, we're going to ignore all that. She's like, I'm not going to. She's I mean, Dana's black. She's like, I ain't fucking Exactly. <laughs> she's like, nah. Yeah. So let's get into the characters because one of the first things Molly texted me was like, how much she hated Kevin. And I need to hear her thoughts about Kevin. Yeah. So... I thought okay. Kevin was doing his best for a 1970s white man. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll get to Kevin. I want to talk about okay, Dana first. Dana. I want to give Dana some some shine because I think one of the most interesting parts of the book, and this is all from Dana's perspective, so you really get it in her head. Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting things, and I swear this ties into Kevin is how passive she seems for a a long time. Like, I think you said, like, uh, cautious to a fault. (laughs) Like, they're, like, beating her. They're, like, they're, like, you a slave. Like, you know how to slave, but you a slave. Like, it's just, and she just, for a very long time, like, goes along with it because she keeps saying to Kevin, who eventually goes back with her at one point, if I come back here, I'm going to need them to, like, think kindly of me. Mm -hmm. So this girl is fucking working. (laughs) Like, she's doing the laundry. She's doing the cooking. She's, like, she is working her ass off. (laughs) Especially when they say, like, maybe it's every the beginning of each chapter. They kind of show a little bit about Dana and Kevin's relationship. Yeah, we get little flashbacks of when they met and how they got together. And she specifically, she's like, I don't cook. I don't clean. <laughs> like, Let me show you how I cook. There's like, right. She like, she repeatedly, there's a whole thing where she won't type up his mm-hmm. paper. She's like, I do not work for you, white man. <laughs> but Rufus has to do it all that. 
Right. And she, you know, she goes along with it because again, like she's like, they could straight up kill me. Like I am in slavery days. Like what are my options? And towards the end, you know, she gets bolder, but I mean, my girl was struggling. Like they, she goes through it. She goes through it. It's violent. She kind of has a moment of realization with the letters. I think the letters was a big turning point Mm. for Dana. (laughs) Just like Celie. Oh my gosh, good connection. <laughs> and I was kind of, I was kind of like, like Dana, why do you believe him? Like you need to, I mean, you need to, everybody, everybody in Maryland was like, you really think he sent those letters? Mm. Alice, Carrie, Nigel was like, mm. shit, even um, uh, Tom Whalen. Oh my god, yeah, and she just kept believing the best in him, which I think kind of goes back to their relationship and how, I don't know, I really like what you said at the beginning about corruption. Like, she kept viewing him through the eyes of a woman raised in 1976. She sees this little boy, she thinks she can have a positive influence on him, but 1815 just really dug, he was, that society and culture really dug its claws in, and he was going to be who he was going to be. Right, because it's, it's kind of crazy, like, because almost... Like, a lot of people on that plantation would have been related to Dana. That's a good point. And she doesn't have that same... Like, she has a connect... Her connection with Alice is different. But I don't think she ever really saw Alice as her ancestor, which I thought was interesting. Like, she sees her as a sister. She sees her, like, as a reflection of her. But she doesn't see, like, the same way that she sees Rufus. Like, this is someone whose survival is necessary for my family line to continue. That's a good point. And also the point about and her being related to half the people on that plantation is also a good point. Right? As I said, Tom Whalen got a whole bunch of kids on that plantation. And Dana's exactly. kind of like, okay, that's cute. Yeah. I mean, she's she's just as related to Tom as she is to Rufus, to Alice, to like all these different people. Joe. Um, Joe barely gets mentioned. And so I kind of think like, oh, you know, why wasn't you know, she, when she went back, she's like, oh, I'm from the future, bitches. Like, pound <laughs> out before me. Like, you know, I know everything. Let me bring a gun with me next time. It's just like, she just kind of falls in line because she does think she can, she can change it. Yeah. Do you think if she was thrown back while in a car, she would take the whole car with her? Because I would just never leave like a car. That's a good Because she was afraid of like ending in an accident. I was like, well, <laughs> that bag went with you. I was like, well, why wouldn't a whole the bag? Right. Hold on to the wheel. You could have you could have driven that car right up into that. That's house. what I'm saying. I would just never leave the car. I was like <laughs> I was like, oh, kick me with a horse, huh? I got something for your ass next time. <laughs> but yeah, do you want to talk like we can get through this, but I kinda wanna shift talking about Alice now that you bring it up because Alice mm-hmm. many times throughout the book. Rufus at one point straight up says that Alice and Dana are two halves of the same woman. <clears throat> and they are seen as like, they're, it's really funny because she doesn't care for Alice the way she does Rufus, but she lets Alice just do all, like, she feels like, I guess, a debt to Alice because when Alice runs yeah. away and returns to, Alice is the daughter of a free woman. So she was originally free, but she runs away with our husband who was enslaved, gets caught gets sold into slavery, is bought by Rufus, and is brought back to the plantation severely, you know, injured and maimed after what they did to her. And so they talk about how they are, sisters is the word you said, and sisters is correct, because at first she does view her as like a little sister. She's caring for her, she's helping her heal. 
And when she returns the second time around after Alice is like healed up and she's been with Rufus, forced to be with Rufus for a couple of years, Alice is like this kind of bitter older woman who just, she will hurt. I don't, she shits on Dana. Like she will. Like constantly. constantly. And Dana just kind of takes it because she feels like she has to. Like she knows that her life is better than Alice's. She knows that she has an escape. Push come to shove. She can, she will find a way to get out of that time period. And she knows that Alice surviving and Alice having Hagger going through and being forced to be with Rufus is a requirement for her survival. So they're a really weird dynamic. It's really twisted. And Alice at this both times really hates Dana, but also is like protective of her. Yes, because my favorite scene of the book. We're going all over the plot, but I think that's fine because like read it, watch it. And it's non-linear. It's very hard to stay in one. That's yeah, true. It's all over the place in the book. <laughs> My favorite scene in the book is after it's towards the end when Dana runs away. And she like say. times it out. <laughs> you know what we're there. She times it out. She's like, okay, if I leave now, no one's gonna see me and I'm gonna be able to go. But this one real hate hate spots her hating ass spots her, tells Tom and Rufus, and they catch up with her and you know, Dana's like, well, how, you know, how did it happen? How did it happen? And she sees the woman, like, the next day, she's, like, all beat up and shit. She's, like, stumbling down the stairs. She's, like, you know, uh, hold on for dear life. And then she sees Alice. Who is it? Uh, Alice. Sarah. Carrie and Sarah. And they all just kind of look at each other, like, don't worry, we take care of it. (laughs) And Tom, (laughs) Rufus's dad, is like, girl, what happened to you? Tell me and I'll make sure they're punished. She's, like, I fell down the stairs. She's like, I thought nothing happened to me. It was like, that's right. <laughs> I just, I just love that part. Cause yeah, like Alice is very protective of Dana. Cause she even nurses her back to health. After the whooping. But at the same time. Yeah. Like, I feel like the only person that she can vent, you know, her grief through is through her relationship with Dana. And it kind of is a microcosm of like, what's happening. Like, okay, so Tom... Waylon is this awful person. He's awful to his wife. He's awful to his son. They turn around like his wife is awful to the enslaved people. You know, Sarah lashes out at Dana. Alice lashes out. The one girl lashes out like everyone like is just beating down on the person underneath them because there's so much horror Mm -hmm. like directed at Mm -hmm. them. I mean, shit. I just I just I you know, I, I we always see like these uh I guess things in sci-fi, it's like, oh, we're going to time travel. We're going to go back in time. It's going to be so cool. And this will be the segue to Kevin. I'm like, bitch, there are a lot of times I do not want to go back to. Exactly. The furthest I would go back to is the 70s. And that's maybe to a skating party for like 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Right. Right. And then it's like, I want to come right back here. Let's talk about Kevin. Soul Train. I I was going to say Soul Train. (laughs) Yes, let's talk about Kevin. Let's talk about Kevin. So Kevin is Data's white husband. <laughs> That's how you can <laughs> He is a white man. And he is, um, he's a writer. Dana's an aspiring writer. He's also like 12 um, years they, older than her. So he, he's older yeah, than he's her. He's like in his 30s. Yeah. They work together. He got this job. He's like, baby, let me take you out of this job. She's like, no. And she's like, okay. <laughs> Sounds great. Kevin is very much like, I go back and forth with him because on the one hand, and I think that 
he kind of goes through a transformation, mm-hmm. right? Because again, it shows how every single person was corrupted by slavery. Mm-hmm. And Kevin takes a really interesting kind of mm-hmm. journey because he starts off the very first time at the river. He doesn't go with her. He just sees her blip out. She blips back. He's like, the fuck happened? Why y'all wet? And she's like, some crazy white man was going to shoot me. They go through all that. The next time he like grabs onto her and they end up going back together. Or maybe this is the third time because it's the river, then the drapes. It's, then they go back yeah, for the, the really third long time. time. The third time. He goes back with her and they concoct this story again. Why they didn't say, I'm from the future. I know everything. <laughs> like, be afraid of me. But then again, I, I think if they did that, because they still had no respect for like her as a black woman, they would have found a way. It's like, I don't care if you're some magic Negro, like you still need to go watch. Yeah, cars. Dana was like, I so. can't tell them because they'll just think I'm crazy. And then I'll have absolutely no credibility <laughs> about anything. So It's just, ugh. I mean, that's why it's such a well-crafted book, because it's like anything you think. I would do. It's like, well, that wouldn't yeah, work. If, well, that wouldn't I work. She does come back with a lot of, like, she came back with a ballpoint pen in a time where they have to dip That's pens true. into ink. She comes back with aspirin in a safety, child safety cap bottle. She's like, I mean, at some point, the evidence is there. I mean, a hammer, some rat poison. She could have come back with a lot. But so the third time Kevin grabs onto her, they go back together. And they concoct this story where, like, Kevin's a dirty old white man. He's sleeping with this young girl that he owns. They broke and they're traveling through Maryland. Yes. And it's such a pathetic story. Even Tom Whalen is like, do you want an out? Right. Like, we should talk about Tom too, because he was an enigma. He really was. But what's interesting and why I texted you, I hate Kevin, is because. So they stay on at the plantation and they say, okay, you can tutor Rufus because he kind of dumb and, you know, we'll let you stay here. She can be like a pretend slave, I guess. And they're walking. They kind of sneak off together, even though like literally everybody sees them all the time. Everybody knows what they're doing. (laughs) One time they're walking and they see some children Mm -hmm. like playing like they're at a slave auction mm-hmm. and let me tell you like that scene had me fucked it was, up yeah like, it was bad it just yeah it was bad and dana like is appropriately like horrified by it like she's like really upset like she just does not like seeing that and doesn't see like a way out of it for these kids like she knows what's going to happen she knows when emancipation comes she knows knows those and kevin's just kind of like oh well you know they're just doing what the adults do <laughs> And it's like that. And then he says, like, at one point, he's like, you know, this could be a fascinating time. Yeah. Like, era to spend some time yeah. in. And it's like, bitch, what did you say? Yeah. So I just, and it, I feel like those are, like, the tentacles, like, the tendrils of, like, the error of racism, like, coming toward him. Because he's like, well, I mean, they're not beating me. I'm not sleeping on a sack on the floor. Like, you know, this is fun. This is like a diversion. This is history. This is like a wedding at a plantation. Colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> right? And I just, I don't know, it just rubbed me the wrong way. But then he does later in that scene where Dana goes back, he's not able to get to her in time. And his ass stays there for five years. And he goes through some shit. (laughs) He goes through some shit. And when, like, Dana comes back. So Dana's beaten pretty badly for teaching a boy and a girl how to read Nigel and Carrie. Uh 
and she's beating really badly. She goes back for like 17 days or something. She calls her cousin and she's like, can you bring me some groceries? The cousin looks at her. She's like, I never thought like you'd let a man beat you. And like everyone the whole time was like, oh, Kevin beating your ass. So unsupportive. Like not even one person was like, do you need help? They're just all like judgy. That's a very 1970s view on uh, domestic violence right there. I love it when books show their age in those little ways. And it's like, how do do they come back? Because like later the cousin sees Kevin and she's like, "Mm." I'm just saying, if someone like beat the shit out of my cousin, like, I don't think I would like sit around and play nice with them. You know what I mean? And the next time I saw her, she was missing a whole ass arm and he had a scar on his head. I'd be like, okay, girl. (laughs) Like how did you lose your arm and then she even sees kevin later and he's like five years older and she's like mm, that's crazy yeah anyway <laughs> this family they're not a close family i think we picked up we learned that early on <laughs> and then when dana does go back and she finally is reunited with him it turns out he was like an abolitionist like he's a john brown type he's like freeing people he's like running from slavers like he had a transformation, like, to see the horrors of it, but he couldn't have it, like, at the plantation because of that power dynamic. He was still on top. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Rufus's mama was, like, coming <laughs> on him a lot, and I was like, that nasty. Because <laughs> Rufus's mother also related to Dana. Oh, yeah. Ugh. See? Right? you got to remind me that everybody's related to her. Right? Because it's like, how could Dana be someone worthy of respect if it's like you could enslave your own children you know what i mean like if you had such an opinion of black people like literally they could be magic literally they could be from the future and you're like i don't care yeah i thought his journey was good and i thought it was good like considering the audience it was meant for and like who was going to read it i think it was good for like let's say let's face it white audiences to have a character who i think they could see themselves through because Kevin is progress, like for the time and for the book, he's progressive. He's anti-racist. His family didn't want him marrying Dana. He married her anyway because he loved her. But for him, I think it's not that I think he's he's definitely not ignorant of what's going on. But I think he feels protected and shielded from what's going on. Like it's all he feels removed. He feels <clears> distant <throat> from it. Like all this stuff happens, and it's like yeah, but it won't affect us. Or I'm here, and he doesn't understand just how dangerous and how even his word really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, she's a black woman. If somebody wants to do something to her, they can. And at best he'll get recourse as like something done to his property. And I think like living the five years and seeing it firsthand and like actually experiencing it with his own eyes helped him to humanize the history and to see the history for what it was. And not as just something he learned in a textbook because the book you know, good on Dana. She really knows her black history and she knows like dates and times and what happened and all that. And so I think like he really had to live it and see it for him to make this journey on someone who's a bit more, I guess, woke before that word got completely removed of all context, but he kind of realized like what history actually was. So I did think it was interesting, his little return to the future and how he had a hard time adjusting back because it does... Again, going back to the term woke before it got ruined, but like once you make these realizations about like history and the past, and I think that's what it was supposed to sort of like symbolize. He lived Mm -hmm. this really rough, really traumatic five years, and now he's back Mm -hmm. home in this house where I think he says something, everything is so soft and so easy, and he Mm -hmm. can't acclimate to it. So it was Mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a really interesting take on like white progressivism and like coming to terms with this history and the journey that I guess people are going through. But yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That was a really good point. And how like once you come back with this knowledge, you can't really fit. You don't really fit in anymore. So he didn't make me mad when she first disappeared and he was trying to convince her it was a hallucination. But I'm like, dude, she's sitting there soaking wet. You saw her disappear in front of your eyes. Yeah. It's like, so what happened, Kevin? Like, Tell me what happened. You explain. You poured water on me? Oh, you didn't? Because okay. he's, like, he's like, maybe. Are you sure that you just haven't heard these names in the past? And then you had a bad dream? She's sitting there covered in muck from a river. Okay. Okay, Kevin. Okay. Okay, Kevin. Okay, there's one other like main main character, which is Rufus. Yes, I think we should talk about Who Rufus is... and Tom. Tom right after Rufus. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So Rufus is Dana's ancestor, and for whatever reason, whatever cruel trick it is, he's the one who she's gotten back to protect. Not right? Alice, not Hagar, but Rufus. <sighs> Bullshit. That's some shit. Which is, <laughs> it's always been interesting to me, like. You know, if there was like some twist at the end and it's like, oh, really, you were supposed to protect Hagar. But no, it's Rufus. And that I mean, that's where the tension of the story comes from. But he is a redheaded child who... He's a menace. He's a menace. (laughs) (laughs) Like, even outside of like the horrors of slavery, he still is like doing too much, like all the time. (laughs) He is drowning when she first meets him. He's setting his room on fire the second time she meets him. He's getting his ass beat after trying to rape Alice. He is going to shoot himself. Like, it's that quote at the end where he's like, what makes you think like I wanted to live? Like, really, what makes you think I've been trying for 26 (laughs) years at this point? You keep interrupting me. You keep interrupting me. He So his father, Tom Whalen, is the plantation owner. Mm -hmm. His mother is like a real evil person, too. I forget his mother's name. Uh, Margaret. She's really neurotic. She's very neurotic. They say that she is not the first wife, not Tom Whalen's first wife, but her her second wife. She's kind of insecure because she comes from a poor family. She hovers over Rufus and he kind of like has this weird like antagonistic relationship with her Mm -hmm. that causes her to lash out at Dana Mm -hmm. a lot. Dana has a cool point where she observes that, like, as he gets older, he treats her like he treated his mother, where he's really cruel mm. and, like, and he tolerates her until he gets sick of it. And then he's really cruel and pushes her away and then comes back with some mm. weird, like, apology, like, you know, I didn't mean it and mm. blah, blah, blah. So it's, just, it's something mm-hmm. about the women in his life. He's We we don't even dig into, the, like, the the feminism and the sex gendered stuff in here, but it's wild too, the way he treats Alice and all that. Yeah. It's just, it's so layered and it's like, you see like he's a product of all these different systems, like creating him into what he was supposed to be this white slave owning Mm -hmm. plantation owner. Like those are not usually heroic things. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on Rufus? I just think Rufus is really interesting because when he's a little kid, like during, we don't really see much, like he's half drowned the first time we meet him. But the second time we meet him when he's like setting his <laughs> drapes on fire, he's like a sympathetic kind of like, he's just like a kid. He's a sympathetic kid. It is a bratty thing he's doing, but he's doing, you know why he's doing it. He's setting fire 
to his drapes to get back at his dad for whooping him with a whip and everything. So like he himself is like this victim of, you know, abuse. And he's been at the, he's been hit by his cruel father. And you do get why Dana is trying to be like, he has potential. She, She teaches him like not to call her nigger and all this other stuff. And he like, he agrees and he's friends with, He's childhood friends with Alice. We really don't get Alice's side. Like, I don't know what it was like, but he's friends with Alice. He really likes Alice. And you see him like the potential he could grow up and just be like a guy who's, you know, who does good and he was can treat people right. And you slowly, as he gets older, his like personality gets more and more warped and twisted and he starts doing things. He starts crossing more lines. And I think the thing that really got me is the very last scene when he's about to attack Dana and he's lying down with her like on her pallet and she's having this Mm -hmm. mental back and forth where she's like, I could just lie back and just not fight and it won't hurt and he won't hurt me. He'll be gentle. He doesn't want to hurt me. And she's like, it's like almost another line that she's about to let him cross. And it's just really Mm -hmm. twisted to see how this little boy we saw as a little boy as he gets older and he gets more and more corrupted and he does more and more cruel things that he excuses by his place in society and by how he's been raised to brought up. I don't know if that really says anything about Rufus. I don't know if I've said anything I haven't said already in the episode. I just think it was a really good character study. Yeah. It, It is interesting. Like there's not a point where she tells Rufus that she's related to him. No. She just yeah, because I tell I, they just both know that she's there to protect him for some reason. He doesn't ever get yeah. the reason why. Because that whole scene, like at the end, I'm like, oh, you're his, you're her grandpa. Like, That's really. But at the same time, it's like so. Alice, he has this infatuation with her. He rapes her. And her husband like beats the shit out of him. And that's one time Dana comes back. They get caught, even though Rufus doesn't. You know, he keeps his word to Dana and he doesn't tell anyone what happened. And he goes and he buys Alice and enslaves her and, you know, continuously rapes her. Like, it's just real creepy when she's like mentally unwell. Yeah, she's very childlike. And, you know, Dana, Dana feels very conflicted about it, but she's kind of like, okay, well, you know, what can I do? What power do I have? And there's like, there's two things that Rufus does to me that are like crazy heinous. And it's like, he, he tells Dana, he's like, well, you need to convince Mm -hmm. Alice to like, come to me without fighting. Like you need to convince her. Like he's like, cause I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rape her. Like I'm going to have sex with her. I'm going to take her. Like that's my right to do it. And he's like, but I would like not to feel bad about it. That's basically it. So you go, (laughs) Right? So you go and, like, smooth things over. And Dana has this conversation with Alice where she's like, well, what are your options, really? And so I feel like that's why Alice is kind of like, well, fuck you forever, Dana. But at the same time, she's like, you're right. Like, what what can I do? I tried running away. So they are in this situation. Alice is in this situation. She's impregnated, like we said. And she first has a little boy who survives and Rufus goes back and forth, like, with how he feels about these kids. And I think at one point he was like, Daddy had all kinds of kids, but uh, slave women, he never looked at them right. twice. And I was like, Ugh. ew. 
And so, you know, when Dana's like trying to convince him to like free the children, trying to convince him to be better than his father, it's like it, that shit just didn't even occur to him. And so Alice goes through this transformation too, where you kind of think like, maybe from the outside, you think like, oh, well, she's going to go along with it. Kind of like Dana goes along with it. Like she's in a position where, you know, this horrible, like you're supposed to think kind of like, well, she's, you know, she doesn't have to work. She's not going to whip, blah, blah, blah. Like she's better off than like a field hand. She's better than the woman who is being raped by the, the slave driver. And so she kind of like seems to relax after Hagar, Dana's, um, you know, uh, ancestor mm-hmm. is born but then she she says and i don't think she ever doesn't mean that she's gonna run away again she's like i am going to leave i'm going to take my children like he's never gonna free them he's lying he's lying constantly and this is like the part that him as a mom too it's like you know they were relatively safe there but they were still enslaved mm-hmm. and she knew like at any time that shit could change and rufus does the most heinously evil mm-hmm. shit he tells Alice that he has sold away her kids down south or something like that. And she's so heartbroken. She's like, there's nothing left. And she hangs herself. Yeah. And it's like when Dana comes back, that time was like eerie. And I, I'm interested to see what the show does with this. Because this this scene is the one that freaked me out when she comes back. And Rufus is just like, oh, hey, Dana. And he like goes off. And then she finds, you know, uh. Al is dead, and it's because he was going to shoot himself. Right. And it's kind of like, this this shit too much, it's, Octavia. It's too it's much. So, it's, so, it's so heartbreaking. It's and it's something he's set up to, like, it's just another control thing. Like, it's just another thing mm-hmm. he's picked up from his... A lot of points in the story, they point out how, along with the physical abuse, the certain mental things they do to keep mm-hmm. the slaves, like, from running away. Like, one of them is... Mm-hmm. Carrie and Nigel get married and have kids and he lets them like build a house and have like their own cabin. And it's like, well, now neither Carrie nor Nigel will run because they have roots and they have family here. And Mm -hmm. it's just another mind game. He tried to play on Alice after Alice ran away the second time. He's like, Oh yeah, I sold the kids. In reality, he sent them to family in Baltimore. Um, She doesn't know that. And so she commit suicide because the one thing she had she was living for the whole time was her children and there's a lot of mm-hmm. story we hear sarah is another character in the book who sarah, had multiple where they sell all her her sons for except carrie. for carrie mm-hmm. and then they're like well she won't try to kill the waylands because what would happen to carrie and then carrie even says the same thing mm-hmm. when dana's like well what if i kill rufus and she's like everyone will be sold right she's like everyone will be broken up. right and like, yeah, so even when people are held together, kept together, it's just to serve another ends that benefits mm-hmm. these slave owners. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Sarah was a fun character. She was the only, she was, I loved it when she, I love when, when Dana meets Sarah and Sarah's like, oh, Miss Margaret's in here. Or Nigel's like, Miss Margaret's in her in here. And then Sarah's just under her breath, like, bitch. And Dana has to go. She's like, I wasn't sure she was talking about me. <laughs> <gasps> or, or Margaret Whalen. And then she's like, right. I, I hung around long enough to figure out which. <laughs> right. And she, you know, she warms up. She warms up. Sarah is an interesting character because Dana warms up to her to an extent, but it's definitely like, I think some of the hostility, some of the like, uh, seems like a choice to me mentality 
that she goes into at first because she constantly says like, you know, this is like the mammy figure. This is someone who's like so broken down, like they don't even care. Mm -hmm. Like even when Margaret Whalen leaves, like Sarah kind of steps into that role and is like cruel to the children. And so she's kind of like, you know, that that perpetuation. But then there's a point where she kind of like, she like really looks at Sarah and she's like, oh, she was probably like really pretty when she was younger. She was probably like, you know, a victim mm-hmm. of this sexual violence. Her children were sold away from her. Like she's she's not this happy mammy figure because there's a lot of rage in her. Mm-hmm. And just like everyone else, it's pointed at everyone, including at Dana. Right. There were a cool, there were a couple moments when Dana herself kind of becomes victim of that talk as to whether or not, I mean, damn, Alice at one point calls her a white, multiple points calls her a white nigger. That's like her favorite thing. <laughs> just like, I'm like, Alice, what does that even mean? But she says that so many times. But she's seen by, I guess, the field slaves and some of the house slaves as just too in with Rufus. She's mm-hmm. um, in, when she is assigned with taking care of Margaret, it's seen as easy work and she's seen as, you know, buttering up and flattering and playing up to Margaret. And she resents it because she's like, everything I do is to keep him alive and keep you all together. And it's it's for everyone else's benefit. It's for someone else's benefit. Mm-hmm. She's not doing it because she enjoys it. Mm-hmm. I did like the scene where Carrie runs up and rubs her face and like she's like, I don't get it. And she runs out to Nigel and she does it. And um, it's a really good quote. And Nigel's like, she's saying you're black and that no part you're black and no it doesn't come off no part of your blackness comes off it doesn't matter what any of the other hands or people say Mm -hmm. yeah yeah carrie was like a true friend start to finish (laughs) she took care of except when she's like going down the stairs and like data's follower she's like looking over her shoulder she's like who the fuck is this (laughs) and she's just kind of like slowly walking away and it's like uh she keeps looking she's like she's still going shit (laughs) And Octavia Butler alludes to her sign for white people. And I just wanted to know what the sign was. Was it just rubbing her cheek? I think she describes it at one point. Because it's like whenever any of the the slaves are called, she like rubs her cheek. And it's like, that means the white people want you. Yeah. Uh, And she beats that one woman's butt. Oh, that's so funny. So I think... I think we just, we've discussed a lot of the big stuff and a lot of the plot. We didn't talk about Tom. Tom was an enigma, as we touched on. Yeah, like, it's interesting that, that quotation you read from Octavia Butler about logic and people not acting logically. Because uh-huh. it feels like Tom Whalen was supposed to be, like, the just straight-up logical character. And it's, like, when in his position what is logical like it doesn't matter about moral Mm -hmm. it's like he's like okay i gotta run this place i own these people so i'm gonna act in a way that is logical to this and sometimes those those things align with dana like giving him giving her the letters from kevin Mm -hmm. or letting you know kevin and her do what they were doing and sometimes it led to like uh him kicking dana in the face (laughs) And it's like, he he never acted out of a way that was like, his motivators were like, I like money and I own slaves. And he's like, that that's about yeah, it. He was never overtly sadistic. 
Like he did yeah, he evil just, things that he thought were fair within the system that he lived in. I exactly. That sounds too yeah. still. That's still too com- uncomfortably apologist for me to be comfortable. With. But it's like that to me. It's like that. It shows you like the how evil the system was. Yeah. That like he could be and that quote that you said like oh you think people are always going to act logical. Well, this is what logical looks like in this in this system. Mm-hmm. It looks like you don't let the the slave girl run away. You beat her, but you don't kill her because that's money. Mm-hmm. And Dana knew that. That's why she didn't like, you know, disappear. And that one time she's getting beat and she's like, I know he won't kill me because that's revenue lost. That's a worker mm-hmm. lost. And it's like, that's such an evil way of thinking. But his his behavior is, even though it seems erratic, like it's always toward the bottom end. Yeah. Or bottom yeah. line for him. They were all very comfortable with Dana knowing how to read her. But I guess at the time she was presenting herself as a freed woman who had gotten enslaved. So. Yeah. And he he didn't like it. And Margaret super didn't right. like it. <laughs> well, actually, Rufus, I feel like. Rufus a couple points like she reads better than you. And she right. was so mad about that. Oh, she was mad. Like that whole scene where she's like, you want some time, Rufus? And she keeps turning to Dana. She's like, bitch, read. <laughs> Oh, I just, oh, yeah, it was just like a physical reaction to some of these characters. Yeah, it was just and I think the book kind of touches on them. You don't I mean, you hate them. They're all cruel. You hate them. But like no one is presented as a flat one dimensional monster. These are real people who could have existed and operated like this. And yeah, the shit they did was foul and it was abusive, but they're not like caricatures and I don't know, like, and I don't mean that. It's not like other sh- terrible shit didn't happen. But ugh, I sound really apologist and I don't like it. <laughs> it's like, it's almost like scarier, yeah. right? I think a lot of these stories that have come out where you're mixing like supernatural with history, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, the the actual, like, they were evil because they were actually monsters. Yeah. But it's like they were evil and they were just people. Like they were evil and they thought that they were doing the right thing. And they were evil and everything affirmed that what they were doing was logical and fair and right. Right. And that was, and this was the outcome. Mm Mm-hmm. So to me, like that's, that's more fucked up. And there was a quote that I thought was really good about how, like, even though they hated, like there's a party, they're having the party and Rufus comes in, he's like, yeah, great job with the corn husking. And then he leaves and like the slaves start like mocking him. <laughs> and yeah. she's like, there was like this combined hatred, contempt and fear and love for him all roll into one. And it's like, that's yeah. going to happen when you have all these people and they have to live together in this weird society. I just thought it was interesting. Like it isn't flat like that. So it was yeah, interesting. Because I think another thing that this book does well was shows the the closeness, the conditions that these people lived mm-hmm. in. Like, we know that chattel slavery of people of African descent looked different in different parts of the mm-hmm. world. And the U.S. South, yes, it was like, y'all were all living, like a lot of places, y'all were all living in the same house. Right. Y'all were living like next door to each other. Y'all were like having offspring. Like there was a closeness that made like, these relationships like so foul and the like the treatment just so heinous like i know in other places um 
like the islands, it was like, oh, you know, you guys are working the sugar plantation and I'll be back in six months. And it like there was a, a more distance that led to different types of relationships. But but here at this time, it was like, yeah, like you're living in my house. You are taking care of my kid. Mm-hmm. Rufus, you got a whole bunch of half siblings right. running around that I'm going to sell into slavery. And it's just like, I just can't even wrap my head around how absurd and just disgusting like some of the behavior is, you yeah, know? Yeah, it's really, it's really foul. Ugh. Slavery is bad, I guess, is what we've landed on. And it took us yeah. an hour and 20 minutes to get there. I think we, this book is great. And I think we've had a good discussion. There was one other thing I wanted to remember. I remember the first time reading this, I was like, well, why didn't she do more? And it's kind of like when we talked about in in the color purple, and we're saying like, okay, well, why didn't Celie fight back sooner? And then you have the character Sophia who did fight back. And mm-hmm. then it's like, you know, you feel like so much rage, you feel so much anger, and you're like, I would do this, I would do that. And it's like, yeah, and it would have had real ass consequences exactly. for you. Yeah. And that's not to say like anyone would have acted one way or the other. Like, I hope to God I never have to go back in time or that the Supreme Court doesn't legalize slavery or whatever, you know? Like, I hope I don't have to live through this, but I can't say how I would act only the anger that I have now reading it from, you know, position of safety. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, maybe Dana could have gone back. And to me, you know, as a modern reader, it seems like she's making a choice. But I think time and time again, this book shows you that there was no choice, you mm-hmm. know? And it also kind of reminded me, this is maybe a slightly spicier take. Well, not spicy, maybe mild at best. But like, do you know, it was like a meme for a while where people were like, it was even on t-shirts, like, I am not my ancestors or whatever. Uh, or it's like, I am not whatever they're saying. Basically, they were trying to say like, yeah, you may have hit and abused, you know, people back in the day, but you're not doing that now. And it just comes off. I was one of the people who thought it came off as really disrespectful because like, mm-hmm. I would not, Dana says this a couple times. She's like, I don't have the endurance for this. I cannot survive mm-hmm. this. I'm not strong enough for this. And I think racism today, and like, we're not pretending there is no racism today, but it's nothing like visceral, like chattel slavery, people owning you, having absolutely zero human rights and being, you know, threatened, told to do something with legitimate legal threats of violence and so i think we can yeah i mean it operates differently it's like you have poison in the air around you you don't have access to health care your children are in unsafe conditions it is still heinous and it's still evil but it's missing that closeness element that seems so shocking right you know that someone would say oh i sold away my children to play a trick on my enslaved concubine concubine like it's missing that that i think is so in your face and shocking and i mean it'll be interesting like i mean we probably won't be around here for it but uh, that afrofuturism piece and it's like well how are we going to talk about the problems of today and what will people think you know about us and our complacency that's a good and about that too yeah how we chose or chose not to fight back or just survive because it's like yeah, racism is still here and it's still heinous and it's still killing black. I mean, look at Octavia Butler dead at 58 mm-hmm. because of high blood pressure, because of this, because of that. And it's like, we know that racism affects us. We know it affects our health. We know it affects our well-being. And here it is playing out time and time again. So I just, I don't know. I mean, that's, I think that's why science fiction is such 
has always been such an interesting genre to me and why you I, I don't think that you can divorce it from race. You know, I think like every every piece of science fiction deals with it in some way or another, even if it looks, you know, totally white and all the black and Jewish people have been sent to mines or something. Right. Well, that's like, that's a choice. Like race and mm-hmm. all those things are such a people try not to say it's not all about it is. It's a fundamental part of society in all nations. Like when you like since the English decided to go off and just you know, rape people by, you know, skin color and all that. There's a history behind when race became a thing. And so if you're writing a book that is all white and there are no black people, brown people, Jewish people, whatever, that's a choice. You're saying something because they exist in real life. So if you have this alternate Mm -hmm. universe where there is no one, then you're saying something with that. You're saying like, look at this fantasy world. Like, I don't know. I never read Lord of the Rings, but I think if everyone in that book is Lily white or whatever. I don't know. Or if there are certain races that aren't from what I know is there are certain races that aren't white and they tend to have the, the negative traits. Like that's, that's saying you're saying something by doing that. Mm-hmm. And like, and it just like the handmaid's tale. I think you were touching on this. Like one of the things I hate most. I was absolutely, I'm glad that you brought <laughs> that up. Cause I was like, I don't want to make it seem like I'm talking about black people and Jewish people going your mind. I asked you about handmaid's tale. You were like, Oh, she wrote all of them out. <laughs> like, correct me if I'm wrong, but she wrote everybody out by saying like all the, all the POC were sent to mines. That's why everyone's right. I was like, girl, that was a choice. But it's, it goes back to right. Parable of the sower, right? Yeah. Where you're like, okay, well, we are and kindred. It's like, well, we already have. Some of us have already lived through this yeah. shit. So, and then it's not even to say, like, you know, where trans people, where, um, you know, uh, gay people, where femme, masculine. Like, there are so many other areas that I think, you know, like my kids and his kids are gonna look back and say, like, well, why weren't you guys talking about this? Why weren't you thinking about that? And yeah, I, I I would love to see, and again, I don't like sequels. <laughs> I would love to see like that future looking back at like us. Like I think that would just be so that would be really good, interesting. Yeah. But we couldn't really do it now because we're in it and we don't know all of our blind. We know some of our blind spots, but we don't know all of them. Right. So, I mean, it would still be interesting to see. Like, I feel like that'd be something that'd be really good as an anthology where different people mm. give different takes. And so you can see what common th- themes pop up, what like commonalities exist. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, all in all, we always ask, would you recommend this book? Definitely, definitely recommend it. I think it's great. I'm really glad it's getting some shine now. I hope the series encourages more people to go out and like read the original text to like prep for it. So yeah, definitely. Even beyond all the deep stuff we talked about, it's just, it's, it's just it good. does. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. There's tension. There's like so much stuff happening, and we didn't get to like literally every, everything. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much more. So yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. How about you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so awesome. So I guess that wraps up this episode. Again, this episode was sponsored by FX's Kindred. It will be coming to Hulu only on Hulu, December thirteenth. We're really excited to see how, I think it'll be really exciting to see how they adapt some of this stuff to TV and adapt it to modern day because 
race relations and things are so much different now than they were in 1979 when the book was published. So like there's some plot points that I think like we've seen the trailer and I think that there are some things they're going to do with some of the characters that will be modernized and will lead to more trouble than it did in the past. That's all I'll say. Yeah. That's my guess. So, and I'm just excited, like, how's Twitter going to get involved in this mess? Like, social media has to be in there somewhere. Some foolishness, so. <laughs> I know, because it's coming out December 13th, and, like, first of all, that's going to be close to... Black Panther. Black Panther, which, ooh, I'm excited. I don't even, like, like... <laughs> I'm mixed emotions. I just, it makes me I'm, sad. It does. I, w- I said very loudly in the middle of a Target today <laughs> that I like Anthony Mackie. <laughs> What? But Chadwick Boseman was a star. Like, and I don't even want to compare them. Like, because someone was saying, like, something about the new Captain America that'll come Uh out. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be good. And I like Anthony Mackie. But then I was, like, very sad. And I was like, oh, I just, Chadwick, like, that one hit me hard. Yeah. So So that was the context that I I realized that sounded like insane. You can cut that (laughs) out, but... Yeah, it'll be coming out, like, close to, like, the holiday break, so people can binge it, tell us what you think about it, and then, like I said, we have another episode, a fun thing that's coming up that FX is also sponsoring, so we can't wait to share that with you guys, too. Yeah, so I think that's it for us. Stay tuned for what's coming up next. We're really excited about it, so bye, guys. Bye.